we have just affirmed Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. That affirmation is right at the heart of the good news for all who believe, and it is the foundation of the church, and it provides a perfect doorway into the passage we'll be looking at this morning from God's Word. First from John 19, and then later from Psalm 22. So if you have a Bible, grab it and open to John 19, verse 16. 19, big number, 16, little number. If you're a guest, we're glad you're here. Let me bring you up to speed on where we've been. We've been in the Gospel of John for about two and a half years now. And, but more recently, we've been looking at the final scenes leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And the way John tells the story is that Jesus' crucifixion is full of saving significance for your life and mine. In fact, the way he presents it is that Jesus' death is truly the death of all deaths because it is only his death that can satisfy the wrath of God fully. Only Jesus is all-powerful, we learn. And he uses his power to bear the full weight of God's wrath against humanity. We've also learned that when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies as our substitute. Like Peter, we are all faithless and deserve condemnation. But Jesus faithfully fulfills his Father's will to stand in the place of the faithless. He stands in our place as the only innocent and unblemished sacrifice. The penalty we deserved for our faithlessness, Jesus chose to pay it all. Even when it meant the utter humiliation of a Roman cross and ultimately death on that cross. You see, Jesus isn't a revolutionary, suffering political consequences for his actions, despite what our world may continue to tell us. We've actually been watching God give up his own divine son for the sake of the world's sins. Today, those same themes continue as we look at the crucifixion of Jesus itself. And some of you are going, wait, 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 wait. Why are you camping out on Good Friday? It's Resurrection Sunday, right? It's Easter. And all I'm going to say at this point is you'll see. You'll see. There are huge things going on in this passage regarding Jesus' kingship. It's all part of one plan that God has to redeem and to gather worshipers under Jesus' present reign worldwide. And that's why I want us to eventually land in Psalm 22, which is where John himself actually takes us in verse 24. But we're not going there just yet. Let's look at the crucifixion beginning in verse 16. And we'll read through verse to, to verse 24. Hear God's word. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments 
and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Why don't we pray together? Father, we love your word. It is food and nourishment for our soul. And we pray that this morning you would speak to us in and through your word that we might be edified, built up as a church, and strengthened in Christ's own resurrection power and authority. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, a lot of people and a lot of religions talk about Jesus in a number of ways. He's a good moral Example: He died for what he believed in. He's a good teacher, a prophet. He's even fairly popular in Hollywood, sometimes noted by the gold chains around folks' necks. Regardless if the cross's meaning is kept, is preserved, is understood fully. But the majority of these people who talk about Jesus merely in these ways, they haven't truly beheld who Jesus really is. Because if you look at their life, they haven't bowed the knee to this king, God's king. The Apostle John sees dangerous consequences when we do not bow the knee. So he tells us precisely who Jesus is, or better, God himself tells us who Jesus is through the Apostle John. Jesus is the true King of Israel. The Apostle John isn't shy about pointing this out as he tells the gospel story. I mean, the whole point of his gospel is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you might have life in his name. The Christ means God's anointed one. God's anointed king. And so right from the very beginning of John's gospel... God anoints Jesus as the true king when the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus at his baptism. Nathanael then identifies Jesus as the Son of God and King of Israel. And Jesus commends him for his faith. And then a bit later, what we see throughout playing out in the gospel is Jesus proving his kingship by doing things like cleansing the temple and fulfilling God's law and feeding the 5,000 and walking on water. Jesus even compares himself to the shepherd king expected by Ezekiel. He is the good shepherd, if you recall, in John chapter 10. He comes to, to gather the Lord's flock and, and then to lead them into good pastures of salvation. And all of this before riding into town on a donkey, which we're told is a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your what? King. Your king is coming. Sitting on a donkey's colt. And then throughout Jesus' trial, Pilate repeatedly calls Jesus king. He presents Jesus as king of the Jews. Now Pilate, of course, doesn't call Jesus Israel's king because he actually believes in what his kingship really means. But the irony is that Pilate is speaking better than he knows. Jesus is Israel's true king. Four truths stand out about this king in our passage today. 
as he suffers on the cross. Four truths about this king. First of all, the king is innocent, but he dies as a criminal. The king is innocent, but he dies as a criminal. Pilate not only identifies Jesus as king unwittingly, but three times over, Pilate also declares Jesus to be innocent. Look back at chapter 18, verse 38. I find no guilt in him. And then chapter 19, verse 4. See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then chapter 19, verse 6. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The point is clear. Jesus is an innocent king. He is a righteous king. But what happens to him anyway is a terrible injustice. Verse 16 says that he's delivered up to be crucified. And even worse, verse 18 describes him as one crucified with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Luke's gospel calls these men criminals. Mark's gospel calls them robbers. And so here is the innocent, the righteous Jesus numbered with the guilty. Numbered with the guilty lawbreakers. The question should come to our minds, if he's innocent, why is he dying? in this way. Now we could chalk it up to a bunch of unjust hypocrites just vying for power at the other's expense, the Jews doing their thing, Pilate doing his thing, and Jesus is but a helpless victim that they'd rather not deal with any more. But verse 17 doesn't allow us to go there because there we see that Jesus himself went out bearing his own cross, bearing his own cross. He's still the actor. He's still the main character. He's still moving the events. He's still submitting to his father's plan. The focus is on his will to bear the cross. It's as Jesus says elsewhere, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Why then does the innocent king choose death among criminals? He does it not for his own sins. He does it because he was carrying our sins. He does it not because he is guilty. He does it to stand in the place of the guilty. As I was studying, I couldn't help but think of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, verse 12. I want you to go there with me in your Bibles. Isaiah had a promise that God would send an innocent servant, one who had uh, done no violence. Uh, if you look at verse 9 real quick of Isaiah 53, he had done no violence there at the end. There was no deceit in his mouth. He's going to send an innocent servant. servant. And, and two things would be true of this servant. If you just glance back uh, at chapter 52, verse 13, this is sort of the introduction to this servant passage here. And it says that my servant shall act wisely and he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Note the word lifted up. This is the word that we've seen oftentimes in John's gospel. Three times Jesus says that he's going to be lifted up. It's a euphemism for being lifted up on the cross. So two things this servant would be true of this servant. The servant would be lifted up and the servant would become a substitute by being treated like a sinner. He would become a substitute by being treated like a sinner. Now that's where I want you to turn to Isaiah 53 verse Isaiah 53, verse 12. He says, I will divide him. This is God speaking, because he's the servant's obeying 
God's will. I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So God's going to honor him. Why is he going to honor him? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with them, among them. He's being treated like one of them, the lawbreakers. He permits himself to be listed among the rebels and to die as a rebel deserved to die. But why? If he's innocent, why? We'll hear now the rest of verse 12. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is why the servant is lifted up on the cross between two transgressors, between the lawbreakers, between the criminals. As Isaiah 53 says, he's bearing the sin of many. He's being treated as he was guilty while being innocent. The servant, by doing this, takes away all of our sins in his death. If he wasn't dying for any sin that he committed, then he must have been dying for somebody else's sins, namely the guilty people he represented. And this is where we see Jesus' kingship and the servanthood of Isaiah coming together in one passage because when you're a king in Israel, what happens to you happens to the people. You represented them. And now if Jesus is king, becoming a servant on the cross, dying between two criminals, criminals he's representing the guilty people he's dying for. So he represents them as their king, or even better, as the servant king. That's why he died like a criminal. With criminals, even though he was innocent. As the innocent king, he was intervening for our criminal minds. He was intervening for our treasonous acts against God. He was intervening for our wayward hearts. Everywhere we had rebelled against God, he was intervening and suffering the death we deserve for transgressing God's law. That's the kind of king he is. He's the innocent one. We're a bunch of rebels to his kingdom, and he has every right to punish us in his wrath, but instead he becomes a servant, bears his own cross, and then hangs as we should have hung beneath God's judgment. The king is innocent but he dies as a criminal in our place. The second truth about this king, the king is indicted, but announces salvation for everyone. The king is indicted, but announces salvation for all. In verse 19, Pilate writes this inscription, and he puts it on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, historically speaking, it was common for Romans to put signs uh, above the criminals who were crucified. Many times a sign of some sort was, was even carried alongside the criminal as they're going towards their crucifixion. And, and written on that sign would be the indictment for which that person was being crucified. The accusation, the charge. It was a way of warning the public. This is what, you, this is what happens to you when you mess with Rome. And just to ensure the message really got out, they'd, they'd write these inscriptions in, in the three most predominant languages of the day, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Rome wanted every segment of the population to know why they crucify people. You challenge the, the emperor, you're going to be here too. The same with Jesus here. His inscription appears in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Pilate wants everybody to know Jesus' indictment, King of the Jews. Of course, the chief priests don't like what Pilate has written. It leaves too much unstated for them. 
They want him to clarify it a bit further. Don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate's already given them exactly what they wanted. Jesus crucified. He's giving them no more. So he says, what I have written, I have written. And as readers, so, so the indictment stands, but as readers who are reading this gospel where it's just king, 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 the real irony stands out here with this indictment. Unwittingly, Pilate's indictment announces the very connection the world needs to hear in order to be saved. King of the Jews, crucify. Make the connection. That's what the world needs to hear in order to be saved. God's promised king throughout the Bible, crucified. Jesus really is the king of the Jews, but he has chosen to reign first from the cross for my sake, for your sake. The whole world needs to make that connection. The Aramaic speakers in Jerusalem, the Latin-speaking soldiers, Greeks far and wide, from the rich to the poor, from great sinners to the worst of sinners, everybody needs to hear that Israel's true king was crucified. The true king saves the world not through pomp and pageantry and imperial force. The true king saves the world by laying down his life for the very rebels fighting against his kingdom. He could have ordered all of heaven to destroy those like us who live so often for the kingdom of self. But what does he choose to do? He chooses to go to the cross in the place of rebels like us to bring us into the kingdom of God. If we are to know Jesus rightly, then we must see him reigning from the cross on our behalf. The king is indicted, but he announces salvation for all. All people without distinction must hear that God's king was crucified. And this is precisely what Jesus said was going to happen in chapter 12 of John's gospel, verse 31 and 32 now this is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, think of the cross, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he means all people without distinction. Jews, speaking Aramaic. Greeks, speaking Greek. And soldiers speaking Latin, whoever they are, whatever rank in society, he's going to draw all people to himself. And so Pilate, as you get this irony, Pilate sitting here pla plastering this charged king of the Jews over Jesus while he's being crucified, and ironically, the message is going out to the whole world. This is what you need to hear in order to be saved. Truth number three, the king is humiliated but fulfills scripture. The king is humiliated but fulfills scripture. Typical ancient crucifixions involved the removal of one's clothing. Romans crucified people naked. Our paintings, let's face it, are way too modest. Just an interesting fact, as I was reading uh, an article earlier this week, people in, within the first hundred years of, of Jesus' crucifixion, they're not drawing pictures of crosses. It's, it's too humiliating. It's, it's like us drawing and wearing electric chairs. But worse. It, it, and even when you see the first, some of the first drawings, it's, it's, the, it's the persecutors of Christians drawing crosses with a donkey on it. Like, this is what we think of your king. It's horrible. This is, this is a shameful way to die. And we, we've lost some of it in our culture when we've got crosses on our coffee mugs and stuff. Typical ancient crucifixions involve the removal of one's clothing. They crucified people naked. 
It was a way to humiliate the person in public. So verse 23 says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. Also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. So even worse, these guys make sport of Jesus' clothing while he hangs naked and bleeding. It's terribly humiliating. There are several points in John's Gospel where you think evil is winning the day. Uh, where the darkness is just too much to conquer. This is certainly the case here, as Jesus hangs powerless from the cross, while the, while the dark minds of men scheme and place bets for clothing, of all things. God in the flesh hangs before them, and they want his polo. And yet, at each point of this, of this dark, where the, where the darkness seems like it's just about to swallow you up in John's gospel. John is quick to remind us of what's really going on, what's really taking place. You saw this with Judas. Everything in you is going, no, when Judas is betraying Jesus and Jesus is saying, I'm controlling this. We see this again here. John, John continues in verse 24 that showing us that God is controlling the story. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. The Bible makes it very clear that regardless of how desperate and dark the cross gets, God's plan to save us stands. It cannot be thwarted by evil. In this case, John quotes from Psalm 22, verse 18, which is a psalm of David. And, and you may remember who David is. David is God's anointed king. And in his role as God's anointed king over Israel, uh, David eventually becomes a, a type, a, a picture uh, uh, that, that looks forward to Christ. Okay? The way David represents the nation, the way uh, David related to God as, as a father relates to a son, uh, the way David prays and suffers and triumphs over his enemies, right? That's what David and Goliath's about, right? It's not about being brave like David, though that may be a tangential point. The point is God delivers his people through his anointed king. It's supposed to point you to somebody. Christ. Okay, so this is the way this is working in the Old Testament with David. All these aspects of David's life point to the way God would work through his much greater Davidic king, Jesus Christ. So the Psalms don't become mere historical reflection on David's sufferings. They actually do something more than that. In addition to that, they actually serve a prophetic role. So what we see in Psalm 22 is that God ordains David to suffer in some specific ways and has, God, and has David write about his sufferings in such a way that they anticipate the very sufferings of Jesus Christ. David's sufferings become a prophetic pointer to, to Jesus, to the sufferings of Jesus. And so if you, if you go with me now to Psalm 22, let's see how this plays out. And you don't need to leave your finger in John 19 anymore, because we're going to stay in Psalm 22. Many of you are familiar with this psalm. You're probably more familiar with it than you think you are, because it's uh, so um, peppered throughout the New Testament. But in the front half of this uh, psalm, uh, we find King David suffering under some uh, pretty severe darkness. Uh, he's surrounded by enemies who mock him and terrify him. And there seems to be some real question as to why he's suffering these things. Especially if God is behind his kingship. I mean, God anointed him. The fact that he's suffering, seems God, God has removed his, 
this blessing here. If God is, as if God has just left him for death. But it's not that that this Davidic, that David has lost all hope. He he hasn't lost all confidence in in God, in God. And so, we see King David moving back and forth between lament and hope in God's deliverance. Lament and hope in God's deliverance. Lament and hope in God's deliverance. So verse 1, we see lament. And this one you're probably most familiar with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Now he hopes in God's deliverance. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Now he returns to lament. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. Man, you can hear the passion narrative in this, can't you? All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And now he turns to hope in God's deliverance. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Last lament. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. He's talking about people here. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. And here it is. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Now pause right there. When John quotes this verse... He's saying that Jesus brings all the revelatory patterns of David's life to their intended goal, and that includes his sufferings as Israel's king. In other words, the evil we see at the foot of the cross isn't winning after all. The darkness surrounding Jesus' crucifixion will not prevail Things are not spinning out of control for God's king. God is fulfilling his plan in scripture and the cross of Jesus Christ is a picture of the king willingly submitting to that plan. God mapped out that plan in holy scripture. It was a plan that included the sufferings of his own anointed Davidic king. And Jesus was now fulfilling the plan even by letting pagans gamble for his clothing. You see, he is the king of the Jews. And the Jews are supposed to see it. Look at how he's suffering, just as David was suffering. But what makes Jesus' sufferings superior to David's, well, is a whole lot. Because he is the Son of God suffering these things, not a mere man. He is an innocent king, not a guilty king suffering these things. He is also not suffering merely at the hands of men. 
he is suffering under the full weight of God's wrath. And so Jesus is the superior Davidic king. But one more thing makes Jesus' sufferings superior to David's. His sufferings on behalf of the people actually carry the power to win universal worship for God among all peoples of the earth. And that is something that was never realized under David's kingship. It's why David himself, along with Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and a host of others in the Old Testament, watched for the day when God would send another David whose sufferings and kingship would actually put the world to rights. This is why Peter calls David a prophet in Acts chapter 2. Because in writing about his own sufferings, he is, a, he is prophesying of the sufferings of Jesus himself. And not just the sufferings of Jesus, but also Jesus' victory for his people. And that brings us to the fourth truth. The king suffers, but is vindicated for worldwide worship. The king suffers, but is vindicated for worldwide worship. You see, God eventually answers King David's lament. David gives one more cry of hope in God's deliverance in verse 19. And God answers him. He vindicates his king. You can read it with me, starting in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. I'm taking... I need to step back here. I'm taking you to this whole passage of Psalm 22 because when the New Testament writers are quoting from the passages in the Old Testament, they have the context of the Old, of the Old Testament passage in mind. So something maybe you should practice when you see them quoting from the Old Testament. Don't just read the one verse. Read it in context of the, of the whole thing. And this is what we get here as John lands us in Psalm 22. But you, O Lord, do not be far off O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Bang, answer, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then it launches into this amazing vindication of the king among all nations. So God answers his cry. He hasn't forsaken his king altogether. He vindicates his anointed king over all his enemies. And what is the result? Worldwide worship. The king that is vindicated enters the assembly of God. He declares the Lord's victory. And what we get is then a circle of worshipers that begins within Israel itself and then grows out to encompass all peoples and all families and all nations of the earth. Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflicted of the afflicted, the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. We're going to talk about that resurrection power in a minute. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who, cannot, who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Now, like I said, that sort of worldwide worship 
under the rule of God's vindicated king never happened under David's reign. Certainly, God vindicated David numerous times over. He, ended, he even vindicates him here. But never did his kingdom realize such universal worship like we are reading of here. David has turned to writing about Christ himself. And besides that, David died and was buried, and his tomb is still with us to this day, to use the words of Peter in Acts 2. David couldn't loose the pangs of death because David was a sinner. He was not a righteous king. Read the account with Bathsheba. So, what becomes of this psalm? It's written not only to teach Israel that God saves his people through his anointed king. It's written as a pointer to another king who would make this happen. Who would finally break the power of sin, leading the people into all kinds of false worship who would break down the barriers between Israel and the nations that they too might be gathered into God's covenant people, who, who would not just enter death, but come out the other side of death, never to die again because he was innocent and therefore establishing his reign forever on the earth. And the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us this reign started happening when God vindicated Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. And you think of Easter, vindication ought to come into your mind immediately. Resurrection is vindication of God's true king. Vindication of all he did for us on the cross. Vindication of his righteousness because he walked out of the grave when every other king in history didn't walk out of the grave. And so Hebrews chapter 2, you can go there if you want or just listen. Hebrews chapter 2 says that we see now Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone But the point is that Jesus didn't stay dead. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by it. More than that, Hebrews 2 says that he had to bring many sons and daughters like yourselves to glory with him. He's not staying there. He's got too many people to bring to glory with him. So... Hebrews also says that after making purification for their sins, for your sins, think of the king on the cross in John's gospel. After making purification for their sins, he then sits down at the right hand of majesty. And as a result, Hebrews 2.12 quotes from Psalm 22, verse 22, this vindication passage we've been looking at. And he says, I will tell of your name. This is Christ speaking now. The Davidic king who reigns. I will tell of God's name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And who are the brothers he's talking about? Who is the congregation? It is the church of the living God, full of Jews and Gentiles who have put their faith in Christ. In other words, Jesus' sufferings on our behalf are so comprehensive that the King of kings in all of his resurrection glory isn't afraid to call you brother. He's not ashamed to call you sister. That's how comprehensive his cross was. That's how much his cross took care of our sins Jesus is not ashamed 
to call you brother and sister. And then he gathers us under his reign as one people, one body, one church. The church is a picture of God's vindicated king gathering all nations for worship. That's what you are. And that should move us in several ways. It should move us to repent and believe the good news, the gospel. It should move us to repent from any clutch to the kingdom of self. If Jesus is truly risen from the dead and establishing God's kingdom of true worship on earth, then we must repent. We must turn away from our sins and walk in humility before him. If we don't bend the knee, he will not rescue us. The promise of vindication and celebration in Psalm 22 won't be ours. All our cries for God's help will go up empty and only mount up further judgment for the last day. But if we repent and if we bow the knee to the true king, then God will vindicate us on the last day in the same way he vindicated his king, Jesus, when he raised him from the dead. And that should send our hearts into worship of this true king. That just simply by faith, by faith in his name, we can be vindicated on the last day as he himself was vindicated. It should send us into celebration of God's goodness and kindness towards us in Jesus Because he died in your place, he's not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters, not because of what you've done, but because of everything he has done for you. He died in your place to take away your shame. He was stripped naked so that you might be clothed with honor. And that ought to move your heart to love and sing to this king, and not just on Easter Sunday, but every day. Jesus doesn't reign only on Easter Sunday. He doesn't, just, he doesn't only reign on Sundays. He reigns every day of your week because he has risen from the grave never to die again. He reigns during business meetings. He reigns when sales are down. He reigns when stress is high. He reigns when trials hit our families. He reigns over everything, even over the darkness we encounter. And one day, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him, just as Psalm 22 says, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Worship him now because this is where Jesus is taking the world with his unstoppable power. And that should also give us great hope in resurrection life. It should give us great hope In Jesus' resurrection victory, I asked some of you this week, how is your faith? And you described it as anemic, struggling. Sometimes there, sometimes not. You're wondering where the fullness and the vibrancy is if God is actually for you in Christ. Some of you learned just this week you've got a disease in your body you didn't know existed there before. And it has you crying out to God. Why? What's this? Where are you? Others of you have suffered great loss within the last few weeks, maybe within the last few years. And the tears still wet your pillow at night as you pray, God, where are you? Are you with me? Where is your victory in this? Brother and sister, the one who is united to Jesus by faith has great hope. Because in the end, our feeling of God's absence will end when we see him face to face. Our pain from suffering at the hands of enemies will fall by his mighty sword. The curtains darkening your soul will one day be thrown wide open to the light of the world. Your lingering doubts will eventually give way to solid ground that is unshakable because God vindicated Jesus and Jesus reigns and Jesus is coming again to bring worldwide worship. The afflicted, note it in Psalm 22, David is suffering, people in Israel are suffering. The afflicted shall eat 
and be satisfied in this kingdom. Christ himself promises it through the mouth of David. Those who seek the Lord shall praise the Lord, it says, and your hearts will live forever in his presence. That's resurrection promise from the Old Testament. Your hearts will live forever in his presence. Why? Jesus is risen from the dead. So stand fast. The dark night could not hold Jesus and it cannot hold any of those united to him. Cry out to him with newness of mind and spirit to the giver of resurrection life. He will not fail you. And that exhortation came to me this week on Tuesday from Travis Bennett in a text message. I'm not doing well. Here's the gospel, Brett. And I'm telling you it now. Lastly, how could we not declare this good news to others? David Platt's words uh, still ring in my ears. Privatized faith in a resurrected king is practically impossible. Privatized faith in a resurrected king is practically impossible. There's too much good news with, bound up with the crucified and the risen king to be silent. And that's why Christ commissioned his church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He wants the afflicted to be raised up in your community. He wants the prosperous that you know at work to bow their knee too. He wants all families of the earth to hear of his victory over sin and death. And so he promises here in Psalm 22, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And so you get this picture of the king entering his assembly, the church, and declaring God's victory, and then the people responding to the king's victory and going and telling others. And church, that's the mantle that we wear we proclaim God's righteousness in Christ. We speak to all generations. We go to all peoples with this very message. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. Let's practice it together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. He died for the guilty. He brings salvation for all. He fulfills God's plan in Scripture. And he's vindicated for worldwide worship. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer?